On March 22, 1984, a local pharmacist and his wife are found murdered outside of Ferretville, Arkansas. Ten days later, the main suspect is found dead in a three-foot pond with an extremely large amount of cocaine in his stomach. Though his death is ruled a suicide, there are so many questions that remain that this case has never truly been solved. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Lee and Karen Dixon and Dennis Ray Flowers. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, it's not raining. It was a very pretty day today. It was. Quarantine basement. Lord. This shit's wild, man. This, this, it's got to stop. Like, come on, people. Just stay in. Wash your hands for a few days so we can get back out, out into the world. Yeah, I saw a good thing today that said viruses don't walk on their own. So stop moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people recovering, though. I mean, it's, you know, the media just hinges on those deaths. But I know right now, it's, that's the biggest thing is just the paranoia fact that the people that I work with, you know, we're, we're good for a day or two, and then they are, like, panicking. And then we had a, a lady get pulled over by a local yokel that didn't know what the hell he was doing and scared her half to death, and he had no business questioning the letter that she had from our corporate office stating that she was a necessary employee. So, you know, please, if... You are out there and and you see someone going to work or pumping gas early in the morning. You know, just think to yourself, you know, there are still people out there that have to keep the lights on. And last time I checked during this, this whole pandemic and this shelter-in-place thing, my bills are still coming in the mail. So I got to keep the lights on. According to the Facebook, because they got this little COVID-19 information center, which is pretty neat. So there's 590,000 total cases. Worldwide? Worldwide, with 130,000 of them have recovered. Yeah. So that means 26,000 deaths, which is a lot, but if you think globally. Well, and I saw a thing the other day. There was a lady just playing into the panic, and she was like, oh, my God, you know, there's 1,100 cases in Georgia, and there's I think at the time there was 40-something or 35-something deaths. It's just, it's it's pandemonium, da-da-da-da. I'm like, ma'am, you do realize that there's 10 million people that live just in the state of Georgia. I think we're doing okay. I'm not downplaying the deaths at all. I'm just saying, based on the cases versus the population, we're doing okay couple of weeks ago you know everybody was like as soon as it gets warm we'll be okay look at florida they don't have hardly any cases and then guess what florida heard and they were like hold my beer you know right now i guess the biggest thing is take this time to reevaluate some priorities in your life and turn the damn news off you can find all you want all the information correct information at the CDC website, the World Health Organization website, and I think there's even a couple of uh, websites that have popped up that just repopulate that information with no narrative. So please, people, please stop the panic. Just do what you're supposed to do. If you have to go to work, just be mindful. Wash your hands. Stay far enough apart. That kind of thing. With that, are getting into... A uh, fucking part two. Part two, dude. We're going to try to do our first interview, man. That's awesome. We, we got this case from a PI. Yeah, and he is a licensed private investigator in the state of Arkansas, and that is not his day job, but that is a passion of his. And he reached out to us, and he has asked us to keep his name anonymous. So we will be referring to him as Mr. Billy. He is remaining anonymous due to having some contacts that are still actively pursuing the case along with himself and some contacts that are involved in the case. Like we noted in the first episode, he really stayed on us. Hey, you're you going to do this? Uh, 
what we're looking at he sent us a synopsis of his case file you know a short i want to say three or four pages of the highlights and then we chased down research and then he was gracious enough to uh to contact us i spoke with him and then you spoke with him he sent us his full case file and there's a lot of information that that he has found that really makes this case even more suspicious or for our true crime junkies out there more tantalizing he is also our first beer sponsor oh man that's awesome so with mr billy sending us some beer he uh turned us on to saddlebach brewery and that is located in northwest arkansas it was rated as one of the 14 brewery tours in the u.s that you need to experience in 2015 and he was kind enough to send us a four pack and he sent us each or not each but he sent an ipa the pale ale the arkansas farmhouse ale and the dirty blonde and we are sincerely enjoying his contribution to the beer fund news nugget or fun fact is that this brewery is located on haverton road which what else was located on haverton road the tisdale's farm yep so this is literally i want to say he said within a mile he did of where the body was found and i think that's a first this will be the first brewery that we ever sample that is within a mile of the crime scene to be honest with you it's some tasty tasty beverages <laughs> mr billy we do appreciate you sending that out and so without any further ado we will get into the interview with billy the private investigator from arkansas that turned us on to this case you know bear with us with the audio we uh cleaned it up as much as we can Hopefully, his responses to our questions are clear enough for you. But again, you know, we want to thank him for everything that he's done in this case and continues to do in this case. And here is our interview with Billy, the private investigator on the case. All right, so today we're doing our first interview and we're talking to Billy from Arkansas. He's asked that his name not be given out due to the ongoing case and the fact that he still has contacts that are working the case and that are actively involved in the case. So, Billy, thank you again for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And we'll just start off with how did you become involved in this case and researching the case? Well, it was uh, July 2013. A friend of mine had brought my brought it to my attention and uh and they knew that I was kind of specialized in older cold cases. And uh, on behalf of the Flowers family, I agreed and uh, took it on. And I thought that it would end up just like the law enforcement uh, case file said it did, where, you know, there wouldn't be anything to it. But boy, was I wrong. And uh, seven years later, I'm still at it. And seems like, though I've answered uh, quite a few questions, there's so many more that's left unanswered. And then a few years into the investigation, I reached out to Karen Dixon's brother, Tommy Bryant, who resides in Batesville, Arkansas, and showed him what I'd found. And now, and he is now aligned with the Flowers family in the belief that not only did Dennis Flowers not kill the Dixons, but uh, it appears that he himself might have been murdered. So that was an interesting uh, revelation in the case that we've got both sides of it, uh, the victim's family and the accused family agreeing on the same thing. Yeah, when you first gave it to us, uh, I was thinking, you know, this would just be your your basic, basically double homicide, and then they, the law enforcement would, you know, find out that Dennis had uh, actually done the, the crime and then it would be kind of a cut and dry but i mean the more we got into it the more rabbit holes just appeared left and right things that just did not make sense 
Yeah, same with me. Uh, it was just too many, too many uh, questions, uh, evidence that wasn't present in the case file, information that wasn't present, uh, indications that uh, things were not examined, evidence was not collected. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a crazy one. Yeah, it is. And I will say, you know, you sent us your synopsis of what you had done. It was a couple of pages long, and we went through it, kind of researched based on that. And then some of the conclusions that we reached, really, when you sent us the entire case file, we kind of reached the same conclusions. And I think that just speaks volume to how well, you know, you did a good job in looking for those, like you say, those little nuggets that just don't quite fit. Right. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, you're right, there are. All right, <laughs> so Ms. Tisdale's account of that night, she stated that after the man left the house, that uh, she witnessed him, after he backed his car into the ditch, that he ran up the road and then kind of fell, got up, tried to run again, fell again, and then crawled up the road, and that was the last that she saw of him. I mean, can you just touch on that and, you know, the significance sure. of that? Well, you know, this was immediately afterward. And just to put a little bit of context into what happened inside the Tisdale house, you know, he obviously, he evidently knocked on the door uh, at or around four o'clock in the morning. And it was in March. So it was it was dark outside and uh, the Tisdales were awakened and then he came in asked to use the phone but he you know both uh, Mr. and Ms. Tisdale stated that he had a weapon in his hand they but they did say he was nice that he didn't ever threaten them but then he heard something outside and he he ran or he turned all the lights off and looked outside and then he ran out and at that point Mr. Tisdale was going towards the back to get a shotgun but by the time he got back with it uh, Flowers was in the rental car backing out of the uh, driveway if you will and, and allegedly backed into a ditch and then got out of the car left the uh, allegedly left the murder weapon uh, in the rental car in the Ford Tempo and started walking north. And that's where Ms. Tisdale claims that she saw him walk up a hundred yards or so, fell down, got up, so forth, so on. I don't doubt Ms. Tisdale. Again, she was an elderly woman at the time. But I, unless there was a street light or something out uh, over the road in which he was walking, I kind of find it hard to believe that she could see him up beyond or around hundred yards of what he was doing. But it does align with the fact that, uh, and I know you guys mentioned it uh, in your first episode, about uh, the, the canine uh, following the scent from flowers from the vehicle up approximately 100 yards to a pack of cigarettes. So that aligns in the same direction heading north. Um, so, you know, and that's just crazy. You know, I mean, as you mentioned a, a, a canine, a professional uh, law enforcement canine dog doesn't lose a scent uh, like that unless the individual that created the scent got into an automobile. Right. And that's, I mean, that's one thing we kind of glossed over in our first episode was the cigarettes. But, you know, with her, your, your research and then us touching on her stating that she had actually seen him crawling, that makes a lot more sense of how the cigarette pack got there. We were thinking more along the lines he just dropped it as he got into another vehicle. But, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. If he fell twice, at least twice, right? that would make a lot more sense of it coming out of his, uh, sure, on, pocket, off of his yeah, person. Pocket, whatever, right. Yeah. So let's get on to uh, Lamar Pettis and how he contacted uh, the prosecuting attorney, Kim Smith. You know, we touched on the fact that he wrestled with, he actually took the call and then stated that he went back to sleep, couldn't sleep, got up, did some research, and then decided to call the prosecutor. If you can just touch on, you know, his involvement and the, sure, how that whole thing played out. Well, Lamar Pettis has been a practicing, or was a practicing attorney in Fayetteville and had been since the mid-70s. 
He was uh, big into Democrat Party politics, excuse me, Democratic Party politics. And he, he met uh, Dennis and uh, his then wife, Linda, through campaigning for a judge that was running for the circuit court in Washington County. And that was around 1980. And they became fast friends, you know, and Lamar was a reputable attorney. And they became such friends that he hired Dennis. Dennis had worked as a barber at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Fayetteville up to around 1977 or 78. And he had a problem with his back and then he had to take disability. So Lamar hired Dennis to look after his rental properties, collect rent, uh, so forth and so on. And that was the case in 1984 as well. So Lamar was, you know, supposedly, as I'm sure everybody was, asleep at 4.15 in the morning. And uh, when he claims he got a phone call, and it was Dennis Flowers. And he stated that Dennis uh, informed him that, that two people were dead, and he was probably going to be the third. So that was, well, actually, he said three people were dead. He was going to be the fourth, which is interesting itself we'll come to it now in the written statement that law enforcement took which was unsigned uh the the statement claims or states that and i'll read it here uh dennis called me and told me that i killed two people but today and I've, i've visited with mr pettis several times uh he he says that is absolutely not what he said and he said that uh, Dennis told him that uh, uh, a pharmacist was dead and he was being set up for it. So that's just crazy within itself. Uh, in fact, Mr. Pettis just signed a sworn affidavit stating as much. And in fact, I can read a portion of that. He said in the early hours of March 22nd at either 413 or 415, my phone began ringing, which awakened me. The caller was Dennis Flowers. Flowers wanted me or wanted to tell me a pharmacist in Fayetteville had been murdered. He then stated, Lamar, I want you to know I would never do anything to harm a child. Dennis stated more than once that he wanted me to know that he would never do anything to harm a child. I could hear people in the background. They sounded upset and were yelling, but they were not pleading for their lives. I asked Dennis where he was, but he did not say where he was, only that he had taken a couple of hostages and was going to tie them up and truck on down the road. So that contradicts directly what was in the statement taken in March of uh, 1984. And... How does that happen? Yeah, and I know during our research, we had kind of what we had found was they made a bigger deal out of him not signing it, but always threw in the little caveat of, you know, it doesn't make it any less credible. It's just one of those weird things that it should have been signed. But I feel like if it wasn't signed, knowing what we know now after researching the case, then it leads credence to maybe this was a prepared statement for him that he needed to go along with that or it was recorded and i believe there's a there's a a mention in a document that the interview was recorded and being transcribed yeah i think yeah that recording doesn't exist anywhere yeah so i mean i guess in lieu of a signature a recording would suffice as far as uh, validation of its uh of its or verification but that doesn't exist either. Yeah. And so let's just touch on the fact that he kept saying that he would never harm a child. Do you think, and this just came to me now, but do you think that he thought that the that uh, their child had been murdered along with yes. both of them? And again, that's speculation, but it only makes sense. Yeah, right? you, yeah you had said that there was three. He kept saying there was three and he would be the fourth. That does, I mean, that just leads credence to he thinks that the son is already perished yes and so therefore and again it's pure speculation he may not have been in the house he may have been outside the house and heard the gunshots and assumed that mason uh had perished as well 
and wanted Lamar to know that he would never hurt a child because actually Dennis had babysat for uh, Mason before he had babysat and played with Lamar's kids. And I guess he was one of those guys that was known to, you know, he would just peel off and go outside and play with the kids instead of visit with the adults. So that was kind of his, uh, his thing. So yeah, it's, it's significant in this case. Yeah, that's just it's odd, you know. And then we didn't we didn't put those two together until you just brought that up with him stating that there had been three and he was going to be the fourth. Right. Well, let's get into uh, Mr. Doug Fogley. What is his involvement in the case, and how does he fit into all this craziness? Well, Doug Fogley was one of three, I believe, uh, CID investigators with Arkansas State Police that was assigned to the Springdale. Arkansas troop and one thing for your listeners not familiar with Northwest Arkansas you you have Fayetteville uh, which is where the University of Arkansas is and then you have Springdale you know just next door and then Springdale goes turns into Lowell which is where J.B. Hunt is headquartered and then Rogers and Bentonville and Bentonville's where Walmart's headquartered so you have this these cities that are just bumped up against each other and uh, this, the Arkansas State Police uh, troop that covered Northwest Arkansas was, and still is to this day, uh, assigned in Springdale. Fogley had been with the uh, State Police since the mid-70s, I think, and uh, maybe 73 or 74. And then he was promoted to CID in around 76, and he was assigned up here to Springdale. There's not a lot. Until there's not a lot about him or on him until about 1980, and that's when he, it you know, if you ask any police officer that was on duty back then about Doug Fogley, they will tell you that he was uh, crooked, he was paid for, and, uh, and you know he would. I don't know if manipulate evidence, but he he would definitely. Uh, uh, arrange things to where certain evidence wasn't examined and so forth and so on to reach a certain conclusion for certain wealthy people that might have been involved some way. Um, he was suspended from, or reassigned rather, from CID to the fire marshal's office in 1985, only a year after this, for that very for uh, reason. Uh, because he was becoming too close and could not remain objective uh, uh, regarding certain individuals in the community. So uh, he, he had that tag on him, and uh, he was the lead for the state police on this case. In fact, Fayetteville didn't even have a homicide division. They just had a general, uh, detective department that investigated all type of felonies, but uh, anytime there was a homicide or an armed robbery or something like that, Arkansas State Police CID would come in to assist. Yeah, I know there's a lot of states where they kind of supersede. I, I remember where, you know, they kind of took over in the D.C. sniper case. A lot of those state, a lot of states, you know, hi, rely heavily on the state police to do most of the legwork and investigative details. Yeah, especially the developing of uh, investigation strategies and, you know, present and major interviews and so forth and so on, because they have the experience, the training, certification, so forth and so on. But today it's all different. Oh, yeah. But back then in the early 80s, there wasn't a lot of homicides in, in Fayetteville or Springdale either. I mean, one, two a year maybe. So uh, the, the Fayetteville PD just stay as proficient correct uh, the other person that we kind of not really glossed over but just didn't have a lot of information on was uh, Rick O'Kelly can you touch on him and his involvement yeah Rick uh, O'Kelly was with Washington County Sheriff's Office at the time as uh, an investigator CID investigator and uh, he's quite a quite a guy he He's one of those guys that, and I've never met him. I've tried to meet him. He wouldn't meet with me. And we corresponded uh, over Facebook Messenger and email a couple of times. But he's just one of those guys from all indication that he's just an arrogant narcissist. It's my way or the highway. I'm right. You're wrong. How dare you question what I tell you? 
type guys, even to this day, and he's long since uh, left law enforcement. Yeah, we ha- we actually have one of those in my hometown. He he felt like God gave him his badge, and you couldn't question his authority. Yeah, well, you know, and that's an indicator of how insecure somebody is. They only get their security from their uh, credentials. But you know, I reached out to him because he went because uh, Flowers' case, or because Dennis Flowers was uh, eventually. Uh, his body turned up outside the city limits and the fact that the Tisdale residents who reported Dennis Flowers in their home was all outside Fayetteville uh, city limits. They had a role in this case and he was just as I described, you know, how dare you? Or what's your motive? Are you trying to write a book? Uh, are you trying to get rich off this? You know, Dennis Flowers was a thug. He was a drug dealer. Why don't you investigate somebody who didn't deserve to die? I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah, to me, he was just very defensive and and uh, more, it was over the top, actually. And I felt his uh, lack of cooperation and, and his de- defensive uh, tone to be telling of itself. But, you know, short of that, I don't have any evidence to say that uh, he did anything improper in this case. He's just one of those guys that uh, can be tough to work with. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, after hearing you talk about him that way, it's almost like he could have went into the investigation with a predetermined notion and he wanted to fit the facts around what he thought happened instead of letting the facts move him to what happened. Yeah, and actually, you know, regardless if he was being influenced from outside forces or not, a lot of uh, investigators struggle with that. You know, they, they become target fixated. They become biased to their own theory. And and it corrupts or disrupts, rather, an investigation. And then maybe, you know, for somebody who's not completely confident in what they did while they were in law enforcement, you know, 30-some-odd years later, somebody's asking questions about it. You know, and they're, they're, they get their feelings hurt defensive and so forth and so on but you know to me hey i want to know the truth if i messed something up or didn't look at something 30 years ago please tell me what i miss yeah uh, i agree completely yeah so we've touched on the tisdale's account that dennis showed up at 4 a.m and uh he wanted to use the phone get a drink of water can you touch on uh lunsford's tale that dennis showed up at his place at 3 30 a.m covered in blood yeah, I mean, that's uh, interesting. He uh, So Gary Lunsford at the time, and this is in the case file, so it's documented in the case file by a couple of witnesses that he was uh, he was a kingpin, if you will, in the Fayetteville drug scene during this time frame. He's allegedly controlled all cocaine traffic in and out of the area. And uh, he claims that Dennis showed up at his house at 3.30 in the morning, on the day in question and he was banging the door and one of the things that uh, he makes mention mention of in his statement he, he identified the exact weapon and caliber that uh, flowers was allegedly brandishing he said that he was carrying a ruger blackhawk or a uh, yeah ruger blackhawk 44 caliber and I, that that made its way into the statement and i just find that so odd if you think about it if you if you're laying a, a if you're asleep at 3.30 in the morning, somebody's banging on your door, you open the door, and then you see a gun. I mean, are you really going to be that uh, dialed in to be able to identify the weapon that the guy's carrying? Uh, you know, anyway, I found that to be odd. So then he comes in, then he enters, uh, Flowers enters the home allegedly, and Lunsford states that uh, he was waving the gun around and pulling the hammer back and squeezing the trigger, dry firing the weapon. But if you think about it, if that was the case and assuming flowers had just murdered the Dixons, he discharged four rounds at the Dixon residence. It was a six shot weapon. The cylinder when re- pulling back the hammer and releasing the trigger, it, it accelerates or advances to the next round. So if that would have been the case, he would have discharged the weapon in Lunsford's house. He never made he never made any mention of that. And then ironically, when the murder weapon was 
later found it did in fact have two rounds left in the cylinder and ready to be advanced to the uh, next live round. So really damages the credibility of the statement. But what's, what's developing here, and I can't tell you how or why it was orchestrated, I can tell you why, if it was orchestrated, is that it's building a three-legged stool of cooperation that Dennis Flowers admitted to murdering the Dixons. And then make Lunsford's story even more compelling. Did he call the police right after Dixon left? No. Evidently, he went back to bed or he did something because he didn't make his statement until 11 o'clock later that day on the 22nd at a gentleman's house, uh, Harold Jones, who's a known organized crime figure, so he went to Harold Jones's house and just so happened that Kenneth McKee, who is a retired state police officer and then a, an investigator for uh, Judge Gibson with circuit court, took his statement there at Harold Jones's house. But how weird is that? Yeah, that's one thing that I just, you know, we we kind of got hung up on the 3.30 and 4 o'clock time frame, but also the fact that. Why, if you had just murdered two people in cold blood and you had the murder weapon on you, why would you go to someone else's house demanding another pistol and cash? Exactly. You know, it, so, that, and, and then, but that neither the cash nor this alleged 22 pistol that Lunsford also claimed Flowers took was ever found. And according to law enforcement theory, he left the Lunsford's house and then drove outside of town and beat on the Tisdale's house, right? And then walked up 100 yards, crossed the road, got in the pond, died. But where's the pistol? Where's the cash? It would have either been on the road between the Lunsfords and the Tisdales where he threw it out the window, or it would be floating in the pond. Yeah, that's the, the, that whole, the whole trans, or the, I guess the situation that takes place according to Lunsford between Lunsford him Lunsford seeing him and then the Tisdale's account, which I, I I take the Tisdale's account more seriously, not so much that it was Dennis, but they had someone come in there. They don't I, I feel like they don't have a dog in the fight. You know, they they're right. just they, they didn't have no reason to lie that we know of. Right. And and I know at the time, you know, and we had talked about this off air, but, you know, them being elderly, they're going to be, to be honest with you, I can just think back to my grandparents. If you'd beat on their door at 4 a.m. and they didn't know you, he wouldn't have had to go get his shotgun. So No, it would have been by the door. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but, yeah, I just, that the whole thing with Lunsford, it just, it just feels like he's got some angle that he's trying to play. Yes. And, uh, and again, the orchestration of it, who knows? Yeah. But it just seems all too weird and too coincidental to be, uh, true. Yeah, you're right. It just, it's just real fishy. Yeah. So let's get into, uh, we didn't really touch on this and, and I kind of didn't really see it until I reread your uh, entire case file was the fact that Linda was interviewed on three consecutive days. Oh, Betty was. Betty. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Betty was interviewed on three consecutive days. And can you just touch on that? We didn't, we really didn't even talk about her being interviewed, but it kind of seems strange to us that they would go back, you know, day after day after day. Well, and again, for those, uh, for your listeners that may not recall, Betty Joe was uh, Dennis's first wife and the mother of his three children. And they had been divorced since 1976. But at the time that all this happened, Dennis's uh, younger two children were actually staying with him at the house and for spring break. So there was communication coordination between Betty Joe and Dennis on that and so forth and so on and they had been they had haggled in the courts in the years of proceeding about child support and all this other stuff but you know they they first went out interviewed betty 
just to see if they, because, you know, at this point in time, he's on the run. There's a big manhunt going on. And uh, so they go talk to her and she's like, no, I hadn't seen him or heard from him. But uh, what was so ironic about her statement was that she said that he didn't kill anybody. And if he did, somebody made him do it. Um, that is that that's very telling right i mean now she had been married to him since 1960 1960 so she knew him well but and then the, the very next day they went out and interviewed again and they they keep increasing the authority of the interviewers right at first it was it was a low-level uh favorable police detective and then the next day it was a um I believe, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, state police, and then the third day, Doug Fogley and Kim Smith, the uh, the prosecutor, interviewed her. And at that point in time, the the Dennis's daughter Dana Flowers was present. She was fourteen years old at the time, and during that interview, he she more or less alibied uh, her father because she claimed that. Uh, he, he tucked her in at twelve o'clock midnight that night in question. Well. The forensic or the uh, state crime lab and the, had the time of death between 12 and 1230. Well, Dana has her dad with her in their house in Fayetteville at, during that same time frame. But Dana did say in that interview that Lee had been there, Lee Dixon had been there with her dad, and then they both left. Well, then that to me explains what happens if if the investigators just use pure logic you know it witness testimony by dana and her brother marcus said that lee was there earlier that evening around five o'clock dana and marcus went with a family friend to a movie lee and dennis left together had been together all night came back later that night we're together. So if Dennis was going to kill Lee, why wouldn't he have just driven him out to the country somewhere and put a bullet in his brain then instead of bringing him home, right? And then them chatting around a little bit, tuck his daughter in bed, and then leave and both of them drive out to the Dixon's residence and then kill him and his wife. Yeah, we did, that, that's one thing that just didn't sit well with us. It, and that led us to believe that you know, kind of like you were saying that they walked in on a situation and I, we feel like they walked in on a situation of more than one person at the Dixon's house and they already had Karen tied up. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it. I mean, one person, okay, you know, so what are you going to do? You're going to hold a gun on Dixon and then with your left hand, you're going to tie up Karen? Yeah, that doesn't, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially if you've got two men on one one perpetrator. Right. Well, I mean, if yeah, just under the, the flowers. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, yeah. Was, yeah, I mean, if it was just, it, per law enforcement theory, flowers, you know, had to have held a, the pistol on Lee. You know, you stay there while I tie up your wife. And then with his left hand, tied her up with two forms of tape and a uh, answer machine cord. Yeah, all the while not leaving a single fingerprint. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's. But he did take his wallet out, put it on the kitchen counter, and grab Dixon's wallet, and put it in his pocket. Yeah, and left that pristine thumbprint right on the top yes. of. Yeah, it and was, I had seen an interview with uh, Karen's brother, and he—that's one thing that he is extremely adamant about—is the fact that no one that he's ever known drinks drinks a soda with a right. thumbprint, just their thumbprint on the top. Well, and that again screams setup. Oh yeah, it just screams it. You know, we're gonna we're gonna clean this place, with the exception of only evidence that leads back to the Patsy. Yeah, I mean, this stuff that you, I mean, this is stuff that you see in the movies. I you're, mean, it's just crazy. You're right. I mean, that's that's that was the biggest thing that we took away from it is, you know, you couldn't. Uh, there's a Hollywood writers that would not come up with some of this stuff. I know. So it's, it is it's, it is unbelievable at the, the level of setup that, that took place. And one of the most objective, and I think, well, I, I've talked to a lot of former police officers 
during this investigation. But there was one gentleman who his integrity was beyond reproach. And he was, a, he was a detective on this case. And he told me, he said, somebody paid good money for that, for that hit. Yeah, you're right. So, because it took somebody who knew exactly how to execute somebody and then literally frame somebody else to where there'd be no doubt for law enforcement to, unless they, you know, use logic to get after them. And then he turns up dead. So then the case is closed. If they would have backed up and said, okay, well, let's look at this audit. All right. So who, who stood to gain and who stood to lose from Dixon being audited? Then that would have, uh, that would have provided a lot of information for him to pursue. If they would have said, really, he left his wallet at the crime scene. This is crazy. Yeah. Right. Then that would have created information for them to pursue. And then on top of the fact of his of flowers after his body being found, the watch pretty much told them the date that he entered the water. They even wrote it down. Yeah, that was they one thing that said, was said. You know what? He may not have gone <laughs> in the pond on the twenty second. Yeah, that was one thing that we just it just blew our mind that it was. It was detailed when he was out of the water, and they detailed it in the report, but then magically that watch disappears, is nowhere to be found once he makes it to Fami's autopsy table. Well, I think it was, I do believe it was there and documented in Little Rock with the crime lab, but what what happens is they package the body up after they've done the autopsy, and then they take all the effects that accompany the body, right? Because that's to be examined as well for uh, for evidence. And they, they put that in an envelope, right? And then they provide that to the next of kin. So in this case, all of, the, all of those effects, right, went back to Linda minus the watch. Right. And it wasn't even on the document itemizing all of the, the things that were being given back to the family it was gone yeah yeah so again you've got more you know evidence of something ain't right you're right i mean it's just like you had stated to us you know off the record it was just there's puzzle pieces that kind of fit but they just don't fit precisely exactly so let's get into the fact that at the time dennis's current wife Linda had left on 319 to go to Oklahoma, and what we assumed was that she was leaving with the drugs that they had faked the break-in with to get some of the money back that they owed, and she didn't return until the 21st. Yes. She left on the 19th, which would have been Sunday, and... I believe or maybe the 18th but she left on that sunday uh, she tried to rent a car at the hertz rentals at the airport well they wouldn't rent her one because she didn't have a credit card so lee dixon actually went down there with a credit card to rent the car for her she left that later that afternoon or sometime because they had broken into the pharmacy the early morning hours of that sunday and or they actually didn't break in they just stole drugs and then fake to break in but then she headed to oklahoma city and uh i've spoken with her on several occasions and she says her mission was to go to oklahoma city and sell dwayne davidson the drugs but the problem is is that the drugs that was itemized as being stolen on that early sunday morning and then what was found in the car once after she got back and flowers left the car in the ditch there's a lot of differences so more questions did Dwayne Davidson buy the drugs and she never you know come up with the money or did he just take the drugs or where did the drugs go because she claimed that he didn't want them yeah so. and that's that's another sticking point for us is the fact that they had contacted him and asked him to stage the robbery and then they were going to let him offload the drugs in Oklahoma City but it's kind of like a and what we've seen you know Dennis doesn't make a whole lot and there's not a whole lot of evidence stating that him and Linda talked a whole lot that the evening of the murder 
because, you know, Dana's there. His kids are there. They've gone to the movies. You would think that Dana, would, if there, if she did come back and there was either drugs missing or money missing, you would think that Dana would know of an argument that they'd gotten into or that her father's right. demeanor had changed. No, in fact, Dana, in her statement a few days after it, told in that interview I mentioned earlier, told uh, law enforcement that once she got, she and, and Marcus got back from the movie, nobody was home. And then Dennis and Lee came in, and Dennis was asking, where's Linda? Where's Linda? And she's like, I don't know. So this is at 9 o'clock or thereafter, right? Yeah. At night. And Dennis doesn't know where Linda is. She had gone to Oklahoma City on Sunday. This is now Wednesday, right, the 21st. 22nd was the Thursday. So 9 p.m. on the 21st. Dennis didn't know where she is. So, now, Linda claims that she got back and went to the Dixon's house and that she and Dennis got into a car, I guess the rental car, and drove home and went to bed. Well, Dana's like, no, nah, that's a, that's a bold-faced lie. So, you have that major conflict. And then when presented with that, uh, she kind of, you know, Linda doesn't have an answer. So, uh, there's there's evidence of potentially she's complicit in this as well. It's just there's no obvious role that she played regarding the homicides. Yeah, I just, we found it, you know, kind of interesting that, you know, this supposed break in, we're going to offload these drugs, get some money, and then it's kind of like an afterthought when they, you know, and she kind of never once says anything, which I know she's not going to incriminate herself, but years later, once it starts coming to light that they had contact, contacted the guy in, in Oklahoma, you would think that, you know, she would come forth, yeah, you know, but she's it just something about her just doesn't – I'm not saying I, that – I know. I think, I think your, your, your sense is, is accurate. But, again, that's the problem with investigating the homicide – or double homicides 30-some-odd years old um, – you know, you can't make people, you can't force people to uh, tell you the truth. All you can do is hope that, uh, you know, something else motivates them. Yeah. Now, one person in this convoluted, crazy story is uh, Misty Jeffrey. And we really didn't touch on her a whole lot, except that, you know, she was, she had kind of been introduced to Lee at the uh, drugstore, and then there was rumors that they may or may not have had an affair and that Karen knew about it. Can you touch on what you had come up with when researching this case and what you found out about Misty Jeffrey? Sure. So Misty was in her early 20s at the time, early to mid-20s. She was an attractive uh, young lady that liked to party. Uh, that's no secret. She admitted it to me on the phone as much. Uh, and others have said the same thing. Uh, she did work for Lee in 1983 at the Consumer's Pharmacy. don't know what she did. I guess she was like a, a checkout person or something because she didn't have any pharmaceutical credentials that I'm aware of. But then she stopped working for him. And more than one witness or resources has indicated that they were having an affair. And so she's heavy into this case. And she was also what is known was known as a party girl. She liked to party with men that had means and the ability to provide her with drugs. And so that was her forte. One of the most interesting aspects of Misty is that in January of 84, Dennis Flowers and another gentleman attempted or did break into her apartment. And this is in late January. And when I first got this case file, I was looking at it, it was just perplexing to me. You know, why would he do that? But then as uh, things developed and more puzzle pieces come together, the uh, police report showed that he just turned the place over, turned her apartment over, removed uh, couch cushions, took mattresses off the bed. So it's clear he was looking for something. And I know you mentioned before, I believe you did, that Harold Jones had uh, – had uh, conveyed to both Dennis and Linda that uh, he didn't. He's glad that he didn't owe the amount of money to a prominent person that they did. So it was forty thousand dollars they owned to a power that they owed to a powerful person. So that led me to believe is, and kind of in line with your theory that you guys talked about in your first episode is that okay? So 
something's gone. Somebody paid them for gave them forty thousand dollars, and they either lost that money, blew that money, or something, and now they owe it. Does Misty Jeffrey's apartment uh, lead into that answer, or did Dennis suspect that she may have stolen what? they don't didn't have any longer was they're turned upside down trying to find it either way he went to jail and he was bailed out uh, and that matter was pending at the time of his uh, death yeah that kind of you know it you could almost chase two rabbits with that one either it was product and she probably knowing her lifestyle you know dabbled in that product and let that finance some of her right. partying or exactly yeah or like you said you know she's She's complicit, at least in the fact that she knew where that either the money or the product went. Exactly. And to your point, that's probably more viable is that they had the product and they were going to deliver it. When they went to get it, it was gone. And they had reason to think that she snatched it. Yeah. And that would. And now let's this kind of touches on another question that we had we were going to pose, but we can just jump into it now. But just chasing this for just a second with you do you think after he goes in he flips her apartment is that about the time that he goes to rehab it's real close See, in fact it, it's he, he went into rehab the second week of february so it's about two weeks after this event and back in the day and i've had several people tell me this that people would say if you knew if you owed somebody a lot of money or somebody was after you you checked yourself into the hospital because they couldn't get to you yeah, and that so, makes sense. Yeah, and he, he went into the hospital uh, in or around, I want to say, February 7th or 10th or something like that. And uh, while he was there, a couple of uh, known criminals visited him that was part of this uh, organization, this organized crime organization up here uh, by the name of uh, Alex Montez and Ronnie Teague and Harold Jones. And obviously no one knows what was said, but it scared Dennis so bad that he asked for a weapon. And uh, Dennis, or excuse me, uh, Lee Dixon brought him, allegedly brought him a weapon and uh, some narcotics, which he then overdosed on and was uh, transferred to a rehab. So, and within 30 days, 31 days or so later, he got out of the rehab. He was clean. Then one week after that, is when the Dixons were murdered. Yeah, and I, I we found it, you know, awful convenient that we and we just theorized we have nothing to back this up that it, it seemed like to us that he did he really did use that rehab time to get his life right and he, he had all intentions of doing right by his kids and trying to get on the straight and narrow and it we kind of theorized that, you know, maybe he was going to approach him and say, Look, you know, we I understand we owe this money. I'm going to get it to you. I'll pay it with interest. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like you said. I mean, because Dana even says that, I mean, he stayed clean after he got out of rehab and wanted to buy a pawn shop because that was his thing. He was kind of a wheeler dealer. Yeah. And, I mean, he liked to wear, you know, fancy watches and, and stuff like that. And he liked to trade stuff and, and that was his thing, and, and and I have his uh, rehab records, and you can follow the treatment uh, for the 30 days. And at the end, he was actually mentoring younger uh, people that had just come into the to the program. He was he was counseling them. He was excited. He was uh, looking forward to reconnecting with his kids again. Uh, so yeah, by all indication, you know this is documented by you know psychologists and and. Uh, and medical professionals to all indication that's exactly right yeah and so just going forward we've kind of touched on uh pettis you know kind of recanting his original statement and then linda's interview and just when they were re-interviewed in 2014 is there anything that kind of stuck out to you that that was totally different from their original statements i know we touched mostly on pettis and how that wasn't signed and then he he signed an affidavit saying that he never said that he killed him well linda gave the appearance that she wanted the truth to come out and and she she wanted the the 
people who killed the Dixons and, and killed Dennis to be discovered. But then again, you know, she obfuscated on some things. I would, you know, the th- anytime you, you have a conversation with this as an investigator, you don't ever want to get into a position to where you shut your witness down. You, you want to kind of keep them talking. And at times she would present contradictory information instead of busting her out on it right there i just kind of let it go and then come back around to it but she she was vague at times and uh you know the biggest information that that i got out of speaking with her in 2014 was one that dennis and lee owed a significant amount of money to a prominent person and then two that she admitted yes her job was to take the, the drugs to oklahoma city and she came out with that and but there was you know it, it's kind of like putting your finger on a, on, a, on a ball of mercury on the table you know you can't ever really catch it right and, the, and that was what interviewing her was like yeah i can just imagine that she's one of those <laughs> that you just think you know you've got her cornered and then she somehow finagles out of it yes and it should be noted and i i, I mean not to disparage anyone's character and everybody you know is makes mistakes early in life but it has been noted by dennis's family that uh he was a different man after marrying linda uh he he had been a deacon in the church he taught sunday school but then after him and betty joe went a separate way and he, he met and married linda that's when the addictions came in that's when the gambling came in just all kind of vices started in his life insurance fraud is a prominent uh, thing with her she wasn't the kind of woman you'd want walking on your lawn because she would find a pothole yeah yeah so that being what it is that's what uh, has been said about uh, her impact on him so there you have it yeah and the last i guess the last big question we have is there was the recliner and someone uh did not or someone found some, some either some drugs in that or some forged prescriptions. Can you touch on that and who that actually entailed? Well, there was a note that was discovered on an automobile or something, and it said, or in an automobile that said, "Get rid of those prescriptions." And to Lee Dixon, well, nobody really knew what to make of it, and it was examined and all this other stuff. But then when Tommy Bryant, he was he was assigned the task or took on the task of, of clearing out uh, the Dixon home and they live in Batesville, Tommy. And that's where Karen grew up in Batesville. It's in Eastern Arkansas. It's about four hours from here. So he got all the furniture and took it back to, to Batesville. And while he was looking at the recliner, he stuck his hand down and found these pieces of paper. And they were about four or five prescriptions made out to a gentleman by the name of Jody Bauckham. Jody Bauckham was uh, a petty criminal in Fayetteville and was known to be a thief and drug dealer and so forth and so on. And all of these prescriptions were made out for, you know, class two narcotics, Valium, and I can't recall what the rest of them were. So obviously they were forged, but that was a factor in this case somehow. Somebody was trying to tell Lee to get rid of them. So that kind of infers that law enforcement was coming down after the audit. Yeah, we had touched on the um, how it kind of started snowballing on him, you know, how the audit and then law enforcement kind of come knocking on his door, asking him, hey, you know, we need to really meet, talk about this. And then I think that's about the time he contacted his father-in-law and made that statement that he either had to lose his license or turn state evidence. Right. Well, he was going to lose his license most likely anyway, but he would have had a means of getting his license back if he would have entered himself into rehab. But the only way that he was going to be able to do that was to tell the truth, right? I mean, so he was in the proverbial rock in a hard place. Yeah. And the people that that, uh, wanted him dead knew that. So, And what's so ironic is he was going to talk to the uh, Arkansas State uh, narcotics investigator that was out of Fort Smith on Thursday, the 22nd, and he died early that morning. Early that morning. And how convenient that is. Exactly. Well, 
other than that, I mean, that, that kind of wraps up the questions that we've had. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that um, some questions maybe you posed in your case file that you would like to get out to our listeners and maybe get them sniffing around or, or seeing if they can answer some well, you, things? You had, you had mentioned uh, possibly starting a Reddit. I encourage you to do that. Uh, I, as the investigator working in this case, that's not my uh, – role but i encourage all your listeners i know your listeners are astute and uh, suspicious so yeah get out there look around see what you can find i encourage everyone to check out the other media i know you mentioned it uh the others just a couple other podcasts there's one uh, little rock uh, nbc affiliate that did a, a piece on the case in 2016 and just i mean the thing is is the, the access to evidence is not that prevalent obviously but theories you know because that's real it is a puzzle and so sure and uh, reach out to uh to these guys on mysterious brews and they'll get in touch with me and i'll work whatever good ideas that's presented yeah and they i think we made some uh some clerical errors and made some wrong names if you'll just touch on what we kind of got wrong well, I mean, I mean, for the most part, you guys, y'all did an awesome job, and I really appreciate the way y'all approached it and the way you lay out a case, and that's why I brought this case to you. There was a couple things uh, that you had mentioned. You had mentioned that you thought Karen had been uh, shot in the stomach. She was not shot in the stomach. She was uh, actually only one round was shot at Karen that uh, penetrated her right finger, I believe, uh, middle finger, and then entered her her right cheek exited her left jaw and re-entered at her clavicle on her shoulder. So that was just one thing. She wasn't shot in, in the stomach. And Lee Dixon was not found in the kitchen. He was actually found in a utility room. And what appears, based on that, it appears that they, they walked in the front door. Or they may have walked in the, through the garage. But either way, they, they were in the living room encountered whoever and it appears that lee turned around and run and uh was chased down and shot up against cabinetry in the utility room which was near the garage kenneth uh tisdale who found dennis in the pond went back across the street to get a fish pole or something of the sort to ease bringing him to the to the bank okay. and that's how the fish hooks ended up in his clothing well, again, we, you know, we, I can't express enough just our gratitude and our thanks for, you know, A, sending this case to us, but also being willing to sit down and, and be our, uh, our guinea pig for our first interview. Well, I think you did a good job. Well, I do appreciate it. And if you have anything for uh, Mr. Billy here, please reach out to us on our social media or, you know, send us an email. Somehow get in touch with us, and we'll make sure that he gets that information. And again, I just want to thank you. And, you know, if you have any other cases you would like to shed some light on, you know, feel free to send them our way. I will. I appreciate you. All right. Thanks again. You're welcome. All right. So that was our interview with uh, Mr. Billy. Our first interview, man. He is a fine gentleman. Um, He had a lot of feedback for us after we ended the interview portion. And uh, we just want to thank him for the feedback and the suggestions for us to move forward and to grow our brand again i just want to reiterate the fact that this is a case that you can sink your teeth into uh it can consume you if you if you let it but i think this is a case that there's some things in the works that it would benefit if you did allow that to take over for a couple of weeks or you know maybe a month and really research it and helps help that family out because you know like we stated in the interview Karen's brother and uh, Dennis's daughter they are looking to have that manner of death changed I think it would just mean the world to them to know that this case is not forgotten so with that recommendations of the week well, even though the hype surrounding this is probably going to be gone by the time this comes out, but man, if you haven't watched Tiger King yet, <laughs> fucking ask yourself what you're doing. What are you doing with your life? That shit is wild. It is wild. I have not 
as of tonight, I have not watched it, but by the time this releases, I will make sure that I have watched it. It is all over social media, and so I'm going to go home and check it out. I mean, this man married two straight dudes. (laughs) (laughs) And he worked at a zoo. (laughs) Two. Two straight dudes. Girl gets her arm ripped off. She's back at work on in for three days. Hey, it's just a flesh one. It was ripped off. <laughs> a tiger bit her arm off. And she's back at work like three days later. It's no big deal. I mean, it's just a flesh one. This shit is wild. And she, that other lady definitely, definitely fed his ass. Fed his her husband to some tigers. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. She's even straight up like, well, if you want a tiger to attack, you can just cover somebody in uh, sardine oil or something. I'm like... This, like she, <laughs> she she's implicated herself. You, she's telling you what she did. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in agreement there. That's that was what I was going to recommend to, uh, you know, as of this recording, uh, they have extended our school closures to the end of April. I unfortunately am still working, and I do get. Not this next week coming up, but I do get spring break, and it'll be so nice for me to self-quarantine at home and not do anything. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, please stay safe. Uh, Man, I, I said two weeks ago I was going to get so much done. I have literally done nothing. Well, that's funny. I had talked to uh, some people that, that I used to work with, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do all this and this and this. And I talked to them today, and they were like, we ain't got shit done. <laughs> Coach, you got anything else about the case? or? No, man. It's just it's just insane. It is. This is a crazy, crazy case. Uh, Arkansas, man. Don't go to Arkansas. <laughs> no. Well, actually, go to Arkansas. Just, uh, just make sure that you mind your p's and q's. Man, I love. I mean, I love Hot Springs. It's such a nice place. Nice people, but golly, there's some weird shit going on in Arkansas. Yeah, there is. <laughs> well, I guess the only thing left to do is. Uh, Deuces. <laughs>